You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. This episode is sponsored by Data-Driven Marketing. CEO and President Jay Casper has been supportive of the EdUp Experience since day one. The work he does generating student interest through SEO and Google PPC is amazing. We greatly encourage you to visit datadrivencollegemarketing.com to find out more about how Jay can help you and your university move forward and grow enrollment. On this episode, please welcome guest Ryan Craig. Ryan is co-founder and managing director of University Ventures and soon-to-be-announced Achieve Partners. Ryan is a successful venture capitalist reimagining the future of higher education. He's also written two books, and his writing can regularly be seen in Forbes and Inside Higher Education. He's a trailblazer within our industry. Now, let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is Elvin Freitas. This is Joseph Lustio. And this is Elizabeth Liva. And on the line, we have Ryan Craig. Ryan, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Hey, Absolutely. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. So where are you located right now, Ryan? I'm in Los Angeles. Um, oh, and great. That's, this is where I, I live. My, our firm is in uh, New York, uh, and I am generally uh, crisscrossing the country, but not so much this week. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't blame me on that one. Yeah. Don't blame me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hopefully you and your loved ones are all healthy. So, so mm-hmm. I totally understand that. So thanks for being on. We appreciate it. Let's dive right in. So one of the questions that I had is um, I was very curious to know, why did you co-found uh, Achieve Partners? What was the idea behind that? Why did you do that? Uh, sure. Well, uh, first of all, we haven't announced Achieve. Uh, so oh. uh, we're not. Oh, good uh, to know. Yeah, uh, we haven't formally announced it, but it it springs out of the work that Daniel and I did at University Ventures, uh, our prior firm, uh, where we um, uh, we developed a, a new a new strategy for creating uh, pathways to uh, to employment, uh, and we can certainly dig into that in greater detail over the course of this uh, of this podcast. But um, it's uh, as, as as you'll you'll recognize. Uh, that uh, this new strategy uh, is neither university-focused nor ventures-focused. So university mm. ventures sort of became like the, the Holy Roman Empire, neither holy nor, nor Roman nor an empire. <laughs> <laughs> so we needed a new name. But we're, we're, we're formally going to announce uh, Achieve, we expect, uh, later this year. Fantastic. Thanks. Hey, Ryan, this is Joe. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Um, so <clears throat> talk about, you know, maybe we, we step backwards there and, you know, since, um, since you haven't formally announced your new venture, t- talk about university ventures and, you know, um, the concept, you know, why you founded uh, that, that uh, organization, uh, VC, and what your original intent and mission was and, and, you know, how did you achieve that mission over time? No, that's a great question. So uh, I, um, I I started my career at Columbia University about 20 years ago, helping universities think about this new thing called the internet. Uh, <laughs> and uh, spent some time there, and then uh, went to a large private equity firm uh, in New York named Warburg Pincus, uh, where I was involved in the uh, founding of uh, what became one of the largest online. Uh, universities uh, in the uh, in the country, uh, and kind of had a front row seat into the growth uh, of these large for-profit online 
universities uh, and mm. recognized uh, that, uh, you know, frankly, there are limits uh, to those those models. Um, that given the many many issues we see uh, in higher education and human capital development, uh, that uh, applying private capital to try to replicate a traditional university in, in most most aspects is uh, probably not uh, an, an imaginative uh, use of private capital and 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 certainly uh, not a not, not not the most productive use uh, of, of of private capital so uh, Daniel and I uh, founded uh, university ventures uh, with the uh, Daniel Bianco, my co-founder, uh, with the goal of trying to help create the next generation of uh, higher education-focused businesses. And this was at an era uh, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, it's kind of the, the dawn of the OPM uh, of model, and so one of the one of the, our early investments was, in fact, an OPM. Um, mm. But we had uh, a vision of creating uh, a number of businesses that would partner with universities, work with universities to help them do things that they don't do well or can't do, uh, and I think we were we've been very successful uh, in that uh, investing across a number of theses, uh, health education, helping universities launch new health programs to address the uh, the, the chronic shortage of healthcare professionals, uh, new student financing. Uh, mechanisms, uh, income share agreements, uh, for example, uh, helping to launch uh, new, uh, exciting new sort of technology-based products and services to serve universities in areas like uh, financial aid uh, and admissions uh, and uh, student services uh, and even re-enrollment of students mm -hmm. who stopped out mm -hmm. uh, of uh, higher education development and advancement uh, is another uh, area uh, and instruction. Uh, we have companies that are uh, literally involved in day-to-day uh, -day, uh, coursework and helping uh, improve uh, and uh, enrich uh, engagement by students in those uh, in those courses. So, um, but we, it was really, um, I'd say, about six six years ago now, where post Great Recession we recognized that. Uh, we began looking at uh, a lot of the sort of economic stats uh, of new and recent college grads and recognizing that uh, one uh, debt was was, yeah. was increasing a student loan debt was increasing to the point where back then it was probably you know about thirty two thirty three thousand now it's close to forty thousand yeah. uh, mm -hmm. per per graduate um, and uh, that students you know look if every student graduated into a you know fifty or sixty thousand dollar a year job. Uh, that level of debt would be sustainable, but that's not what we were seeing at all. Post-Great Recession, mm -hmm. we were seeing really high levels of underemployment, and we know now that if you're underemployed in your first job uh, after college, uh, two-thirds of the time you'll be underemployed five years later, and half the time you'll be underemployed a decade later, right? It makes sense. Careers are path-dependent. Mm -hmm. yep. Your second, your third employer are going to care a lot about what your first job was, maybe even more about that than what you studied or where you studied or or even if you went to college. So um, we, 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 began, we began looking at uh, new pathways uh, to, uh, to, to employment, right? Why is, the, why is it that uh, if you want a good job in a growing sector of the economy, the only pathway lies through a, uh, you know, sitting in a classroom for four years uh, of an accredited, at an accredited institution and earning 120 credits? Right. Is yeah. It, one it, one it, amendment. One one slight amendment to that is that it gen generally does not go four years. It's 
I think the national average is 5.2. Yeah. So yeah. to your point, yeah. if, if you're enrolled at a public institution, it, it, it's probably longer because you can't get yeah. the coursework okay. or you've transferred from a community college right. and your, mm -hmm. your, your, your credits don't transfer uh, properly, so you mm -hmm. need to retake some coursework. So yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, we began looking at, uh, you know, at the, and, and this was a time when we were just seeing the first coding boot camps uh, mm -hmm. come online, General Assembly and Galvanize. And we began to make some investments in those uh, in those businesses, other boot camps as well, not just coding, uh, but uh, other uh, other areas. And, and, and we coined a term uh, that you might have heard of called last mile training, uh, which reflects what we think these um, the, these uh, these new uh, organizations are doing. Uh, and the way to, the, the way we we began thinking of it is, you know, in education, everything to date uh, has always been kind of you know built from from left to right. Right, middle school builds on elementary school, high school builds on middle school, uh, uh, college builds on what you learned in high school. It's all yeah. kind of left to right. Um, in a world where the, the first job uh, becomes really, really important, more important than it was, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, to get a good first job, then uh, for many people it will make sense to build backwards from that first job. So build kind of right to right to left from the first job. And what we were noticing is that increasingly the first job uh, is requiring a, dis a distinct set of different uh, tech technical or digital skills uh, and mm. soft skills, uh, and that's what we were seeing. Now, obviously, there needs to be a baseline level of cognitive skills, or, or you're not going to, you know, make it through uh, the uh, the hiring funnel. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, what 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 we were seeing is in in terms of sort of the the basic screen up top at the very top of the hiring funnel was was a combination of technical skills. Uh, and so last mile training really reflects uh, a combination of those digital digital skills, business knowledge, uh, and, and soft skills. Uh, and so that's what, what we began looking at. And uh, it comes in a number of forms. And in my, in my book that came out uh, at, at the end of 2018, uh, A New You, Faster and Cheaper Alternatives to College, I sort of try and create a taxonomy uh, for this, these new last mile training uh, programs, starting with you know the tuition-based boot camps, um, which you know, uh, kind of you know, in, in terms of model, uh, they they they're not too dissimilar from traditional you know post-secondary institutions, right? You you kind of pay money up front, uh, and you kind of you know, there's no there's no guaranteed employment outcome. You you have a better you know, you think you got a good shot at it, and then, in fact, most of those programs will advertise that 70% of our graduates are in jobs that make sixty thousand dollars a year or more within mm -hmm. three months or whatever they yep. whatever it might be. But they're not guaranteeing you an outcome. And then we began seeing the sort of the next generation, which is they didn't, you know, the, the tuition uh, was removed from the equation. So with the advent of these income share agreements, uh, we we began to see uh, boot camps and last mile training programs. That said, well, look, we'll, we'll we'll take the financial risk, right? You sign a contract with us that says that after you graduate, you share a a, a percentage of your your income, say you know, 10% of your income for three years or four years. Uh, but only if you're making more than forty thousand dollars a year, and it's going to be capped in terms of time and capped in terms of total uh, amount you might share with us. But at least, uh, you know, that removes uh, part of that that friction up front of the of the cost uh, of getting those additional skills. Um, and we and 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 so we're excited about that. But then we began to say, well, look, you know, are there models that 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 could actually uh, remove uh, that friction up front for the student? Uh, and also solve the friction that we're seeing in the market for employers, which is increasingly 
uh, employers uh, uh, not wanting to hire candidates who literally haven't done that job before. <laughs> and it kind of makes entry-level hiring a bit of an, an oxymoron, but uh, it helps explain the level of underemployment we're seeing of new college grads, uh, where you have these employers who, you know, just don't want, you know, to, to, to hire someone who doesn't meet every, you know, doesn't check every box uh, on their list. And, and 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 employers of American employers over the last 20 years have largely gotten out of the business of entry-level training. Um, they they and and that's you know in large part because of the churn uh, they see. Uh, you know, probably about half of. Uh, new graduates uh, will churn out of a, uh, out of their job within two years. So if I'm spending three months or six months training you, that's kind of money out the window that I'll never really see a return on uh, because my you know my competitor will will benefit when they hire uh, that 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 employee. So um, we began looking at models that address that friction as well. We call that hiring friction, uh, in, in addition to the friction up up front, which we we call education. Friction for the for the for the individual, um, and we began looking at models that uh, employed uh, staffing, uh, you know, staffing companies, business services companies that already have relationships with uh, the, the 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 end employers, the, the places uh, that ultimately uh, folks want to end up, right? The destinations of choice. How mm -hmm. do you how do you bridge that gap? How do you actually you know get a candidate or better yet a thousand candidates? Into good jobs uh, at a Fortune 500 company at the entry level, um, and we recognize that in order to do that, uh, you really you're really uh, uh, significantly advantaged if you already have a relationship uh, with that uh, with, with with those employers. Uh, and so, uh, Reviture uh, was our uh, company where we sort of realized just the power uh, of this model of combining last mile training, and in Reviture's case, staffing, uh, where you can eliminate the friction up front for the candidate and the friction for the employer and scale very rapidly, uh, and in so doing, uh, change thousands of lives, make sure, that, you know, get, get them good jobs they would not have been able to attain if not for the creation of this new pathway. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, that's why <laughs> we have a new firm and a new a new strategy uh, here is that we, we think that that model uh, not only can be replicated, but needs to be replicated uh, across mm. dozens of yeah. dozens of skill gap sectors, and effectively answering the question of how does America go from an economy where everyone needs to have a four-year degree in order to have a shot uh, at a good job, to hundreds or thousands of different pathways uh, that lead to good jobs. Uh, effectively, these models that I'm describing are, are are sort of a new, you know, 21st century version of apprenticeship uh, models. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to be the J.P. Morgan Chases of the world or the Verizons that are offering the apprenticeship programs. The apprenticeships will be offered by intermediaries that can build a a business uh, around the provision of talent to their clients. And those are the companies that we're building. Interesting. This is Joe again. <clears throat> Thanks for that that uh, overview. And obviously, I think the common theme here is that. Uh, and my takeaway from hearing you talk is, you know, there's a, there's a difference between a traditional education and an education that gets you a job, an education that provides some level of return on investment. So I want to just go back and look at this from a consumer perspective, because you've been doing this for a long time and, and you know, you've get, been going through different iterations of businesses and investing. Um, have you seen the consumer, the consumerist perspective on education change and if so how and you know are our students consumers smarter and more aware of their 
buying power these days than they were, you know, 10 years ago when, you know, you began investing and, and so on. You know, how has the landscape changed from a consumer perspective and point of view? And yeah, also to, to to add to that, Joe, yeah. and, and Ryan, maybe you can address this. I saw a really fascinating article uh, with a stat about how most people, um, when they did the survey, say that an internship, say, with Google would be more beneficial than a college degree. So are you finding now in terms of just the work that you're doing and, and some of the things, the feedback that you're getting that a lot of times these apprenticeship programs and some of these different kinds of uh, uh, innovations that are coming out as far as the stackable certifications and all these, do are, are, are consumers, are students more apt to want to pursue something of that nature as opposed to a four-year degree? Hey guys, this is Joe. Uh, just reminding you that this episode has been sponsored by Data Driven Marketing. Uh, you can find out more about the services that Data Driven Marketing provides by visiting datadrivencollegemarketing.com. You know, I personally know Jay Casper, the president and CEO of Data Driven Marketing. And I can tell you that the guy is a magician when it comes to Google PPC and SEO optimization for your website, generating interest in your programs. There's never been a more important time, given the virus and everything that's happening to us right now, uh, for you to look in to an expert that can help you increase enrollment. Simply put, guys, Jay can help you increase enrollment at your university or college. It is time to check out his site, datadrivencollegemarketing.com. That's datadrivencollegemarketing.com. Now let's get back to the conversation with Ryan Craig. Yeah, look, those are great questions. Let me just say that the the, the survey you cited about Google, uh, the Google internship, that was a Google internship being more valuable than a Harvard degree. Not just. Oh wow! <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I would have expected it to be you know than any any, any old degree, but a Harvard degree wow. that was that was kind yeah. of surprising. But look, right. I, I think you you hit the nail on the head. The the, the single biggest change in higher education over the last twenty years. Twenty years ago, if you'd surveyed uh, individuals, young and young people, and 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 returning workers returning to higher education, you'd ask them why they were re-enrolling, right? Why, why, mm -hmm. why are they? You know, what, what's the point? Why are you are hoping to earn a degree? Only about half of them would have given you a, a response uh, around job or career or income. And today, when you ask that question consistently, survey after survey, 92 percent, 94 percent, 93 percent say it's about getting a good first job or a better job, right? So we have, we call that the employment imperative, the new employment imperative in higher education. And you know, look, it makes, makes sense, right? 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when your average tuition was, you know, uh, per semester was more like five, 6,000 as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, 15 to 18,000, right? Mm -hmm. You could, you know, you could be a little more carefree uh, about right. uh, what you studied, where you studied, you know, starting, stopping, uh, et cetera. Today, uh, when you're incurring, from, for most students, when you're incurring debt from day one uh, of your degree program, you know you're kind of you kind of feel like you're on the clock, uh, and you need you need mm -hmm. to have a destination uh, in mind. So, uh, look, I, I uh, and I, I, I say this all, all the time. Uh, I love what traditional college is supposed to be about, right? Who 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 wouldn't be in favor? of, you know, building critical thinking skills, problem-solving skills. Well, well, Ryan, you attended Yale, so you're, no, I, you're I'm a leaguer. I benefited, I benefited <laughs> greatly 
from that. Uh, the problem yeah. was that that was 25 years ago, and it, yeah. <laughs> cost, it, was, it was very was very different. And frankly, yeah. you know, there are a lot of universities that uh, pretend to be, uh, you know, have the the caliber of, of 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 those top schools that just simply aren't. I, I've I've used the analogy of kind of the Olive Garden. Where you walk in and and you know just because they have tablecloths and a, and a wine list doesn't mean it's a fine dining Italian <laughs> restaurant. Uh, have you been talking to my wife, uh, Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so, but that's the that, that that's the big change. This 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 move this move to the, the employment imperative. And look, uh, students from uh, you know uh, wealthy families and and students who are, who are well off coming in don't have to worry about these things, right? They're going to be fine. Uh, but that's that's you know five ten percent of the population. Uh, you've got, you know, close to 20 million students who are uh, not from uh, high-income families who are enrolling in, in higher education, and, and almost universally, they they need to know what the destination is, what the return is going to be to justify the financial risk of taking on this debt, uh, because at almost every school, there's a there's a gap between what they can afford. Uh, and uh, what uh, what the uh, what the what the school charges. So that that that's coming out in terms of loans, uh, subsidized loans, unsubsidized federal loans, private loans, um, uh, or you know government government backed plus loans, which are effectively you know, private loans from the federal government at a at a you know high interest rate. Uh, it's it's incredibly expensive, and so uh, you know I think that in the last five years, uh, most colleges and universities have woken up to the fact that this is a huge problem, that if you're a, if you're a non-selective institution, meaning if you admit more than 50% of your applicants, and by the way, that's you know almost all schools in the country except for about 200. There are 200 that accept fewer than 50%. So everyone else, you've got about 4,000 other, other uh, four-year institutions out there uh, that are, that are non-selective. Um, you cannot continue to charge this level of tuition without providing uh, some greater guidance or certainty or maybe even a guarantee uh, of, uh, of employment uh, at the end. And there's some schools, you know, we started to see things like, oh, if you don't find a job, you can continue to take courses for no, for no fee. Um, or maybe even, you know, we'll, we'll return some of the tuition to you. But that's not what the, that's not the guarantee students are looking for. They want the job. They want a good first job. And the problem yeah. is that most that, that, that academic institutions, which all colleges and universities are, uh, are not well situated to help bridge that gap to the end employer. Um, so again, that's why our focus is on trying to create a sort of new generation of intermediaries that come from the employer side and help bridge that gap. And let me just let's just add that. Um, in, in, in no way do I think that less uh, of what traditional college does in terms of the cognitive skill building uh, is, is, uh, is viable or advisable, right? In this global knowledge economy, you're going to need all of those skills and more, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. The question is not, uh, you know, should there be less college? Of course not. Uh, the question is how we consume that. And what we're suggesting is that for many students, Rather than trying to, you know, go into debt uh, and sort of, you know, have all you can eat in one sitting to try to get all your post-secondary education done uh, by the age of 22 or 23, when you're at your most vulnerable from an economic uh, standpoint, why not get what you need when you need it? And when most mm. good first jobs consist of, you know, this is the way I characterize it, the most good first jobs uh, consist of, you know, you're working for a company, 
and you're using you know one or more software platforms to help manage business functions inside that organization. And when our when our colleges and universities neither train on the software nor on the business functions, right? We've got problem. We've got a problem. So for yeah. example, a few months ago I was speaking to an audience of college and university presidents. And I, 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 there are a couple hundred of them, and I asked them, you know, put hands up if your institution provides any training at all on Salesforce, right? The number one yeah. software platform software. used in American business uh, today, SaaS platform. Not one hand went up. So, wow. That's mind-blowing, right, Alvin? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, but again, that's not why, you know, think, think about faculty who teach at accredited institute, accredited four-year universities. They, they're not doing it because they're excited about equipping students with the skills that employers are looking for in entry-level jobs. That's not why they're doing it, right? They keep, you know, colleges and universities say, uh, and they continue to say, that we prepare you for your fifth job, not your first job, right? Your fifth job, you're going to need all these skills. And we agree, you're going to need all those skills. But the problem is, if you don't get a good first job, you're probably not going to get a good fifth job. Right. So that's where things break down. So I, I want to jump in, Ryan, because, um, wow, so much value, so much content. I love it. But it's it's huge. What, what you're doing is huge. So I want to get into the details. What's your plan for the first year? What what type of metrics are you looking to accomplish? What is it that you want to say, measure yourself and say, we've done this in the first year and this equals success? Yeah, look, it's literally through putting, can, uh, through putting uh, talent uh, to, uh, to to the employer and then having the employer hire them. So, I mean, what, what, what's interesting here, I, I'm thinking a lot about new models where, you know, for, for, forever we've been funding the, the education, the training, the coursework. What about a new model where we funded the placement, right, mm -hmm. where you don't, you don't get paid until your student mm -hmm. actually is in a good job making $50,000 a year or more, full-time employed with benefits and multiple career paths? Like, how about that? And how much would we be willing as a society to pay for that? So as we think about sort of first generation and underrepresented minority uh, uh, students, you know, why, you know, why, you know, I, I think there, there are lots of, uh, you know, entities uh, not, not philanthropic and, and public who'd be willing to pay uh, a pretty penny uh, for that result uh, at, uh, at scale. And if that's the result we're looking for, why don't we work backwards from that? So, you know, and one other thing about, about, our, about our, uh, this new model that we're, that we're focused on, uh, is that um, you know, with no education friction up front, where candidates uh, aren't, students aren't being asked to to pay, uh, and in fact they're being hired from day one, so they're guaranteed a job. There's no friction, so uh, we can prioritize diversity. And uh, we have lots mm. of employers across our portfolio, for example, in in tech, who say, well, you know, it's great. Not only can you provide me with purpose-trained talent, trained on exactly the tech stack that we have, where we can't find candidates. But you can do it, and you, and you and you can help diversify our workforce as a result. Mm. You know, sign me up. So you know, for us, it, we're 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 tracking, um, uh, the, you know, the, the the number that we're throughputting, uh, and then uh, we're also tracking uh, metrics around sort of first gen, underrepresented minority uh, income level, and so forth to make sure. Uh, that uh, we're, we're demonstrating that this is not just a model uh, for uh, helping people get jobs, but it's helping the people who most need a, need a leg up get good jobs. Ryan, what do you what do you what do you make of the what do you you know because we're talking about debt? Obviously, when when there's a debt problem, it, it creates innovation and people look at things different ways. And I I chuckle to myself, although not really chuckle, because I, I'm still 
um, paying off my my undergraduate degree debt because it's at a low interest rate and it's 100 bucks a month and I'm like why pay it off and I'll pay off my car that's at a you know a higher interest rate um, and, and you know I remember when I was in uh, my undergraduate I, I I remember asking my parents to stay a fifth year because I want to change my major and I remember my dad looking at you know looking at me going uh, there is no way that's going to happen you're going to get your ass out of college and you're going to work you know mm-hmm. so I appreciate that too because I, I think I could have wasted another year or two in college if I if I wanted to um, but what what do you think about the concept of free college I mean you know there's uh, states out there and state systems trying free college um, I've got my own opinions on it but I always like to, to talk to others uh, particularly, you know, response to a student debt issue. Okay, let's just offer it for free. And is it really free? Um, and and what does that look like, you know, in terms of servicing students and so on? So I'm sure you have some thought there because it's uh, been a parallel type of uh, of path uh, along with alternative uh, methods to to education. Yeah. Well, so first of all, um, it's understandable, right? Uh, when yep. something's broken, uh, you know, uh, it's too expensive. People, students are incurring debt. Let's make it free. So yep. I get the, I get the impulse. It's absolutely a, uh, you know, um, I would say logical, but it's it's a response <laughs> to the <laughs> to the problem. There, there are a couple of there are a couple of big challenges though. One is that uh, free doesn't mean free uh, for the student because free tuition still means that you'll probably be incurring fees, uh, books, and then more importantly, uh, room and board. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, students who are not working, uh, who are you know, taking free college, uh, will probably still have to borrow if they're, if they're attending full time. Right. Uh, and that may be up to, you know, at some schools that, you know, that, that, that's like 20,000 a year, right, to uh, right. Room, room and board and, and fees and so forth. So it's not, it's not free. So free college may, mean, uh, may still mean $80,000 in debt <laughs> for, for a student attending a you know a sort of a, 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 a high-priced uh, university, um, the second point is that it doesn't address the fundamental issue we've just been talking about, which is how right. you get a job. You know, you look at Europe. Uh, there are lots of countries in Europe where it's effectively free, uh, and they have the same problem, right? It's even more so because it's almost you know uh, you know there there are even higher rates of participation uh, in post-secondary education. Uh, so you get all these students who are you know, not working, uh, who are uh, enrolled in these programs that don't lead to jobs, uh, and then what happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, we, we'd rather solve the fundamental issue, <laughs> which is, you know, how do you, um, you know, provide a set? And, and, and our, our view uh, is that colleges uh, and universities, um, look, most of them understand this is, this is an issue, but it's, it is so hard for them to change uh, mm-hmm. and, and re- reorient course. For most of them, it's mm-hmm. kind of like turning a Turning a battleship or a, a you know a big cruise ship uh, uh, around, that uh, it, it, things aren't going to change until they feel financial pain, and they're going right. to feel financial pain mm. yeah. when their enrollment uh, begins declining. Uh, and we, we're starting to see that. Uh, there was just a survey of mid-sized and small schools that indicated that 60% uh, in this current academic year failed to meet their enrollment goals. Yep. Uh, so, um, wow. you know, it, it is, it is going to be a challenge and it's going to happen more as, as these new pathways uh, emerge. And in, you know, a given city, let's say Miami, uh, you've got, uh, you know, a dozen new pathways um, that are hiring, you know, a thousand or 2000 a year, you know, directly out of high school or without a degree requirement into jobs in tech and healthcare and other sort of new economy areas with these new these new pathways mm-hmm. um, you're going to have thousands of students who uh, you know would otherwise be attending local post-secondary institutions who offer these new pathways and that's when 
uh, I think that's the point uh, at which higher education is, is going to be forced to change. Uh, because it's not just you know they, they won't be able to uh, you know put band-aids uh, on the uh, on the situation. They will need to make sure uh, that the programs they're running uh, are good value uh, and lead to uh, good economic outcomes for students. Uh, that's going to require major change. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and the other point, I, the other point I want to mention is that um, there's also a huge opportunity for colleges and universities here because. All of these thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of students who are opting for these new faster and cheaper pathways to good jobs are going to need subsequent post-secondary education. They're going to need the secondary or tertiary pathway where they're going to build those cognitive skills, executive function skills, problem-solving skills, critical thinking skills, and probably specific to an industry, probably specific to a job function. So I think of it like a kind of unbundled master's program. Mm -hmm. uh, where colleges and universities will need to take these and essentially create these new pathways that students are going to need, and they'll be they'll, they'll be willing to pay for them, right? And they'll be you know because think about it, you'll have worked for a few years, you'll have made money, you'll have no debt, you'll know what your career goals are. How do I get there? Well, I need to take this nine nine month program at uh, you know University of Miami. And interestingly, when you say that too, there's some right when you when you conceptualize that model, there's some interesting consequences that come from that, right? If you're if you have no debt, you have a good job, and you know what you want to do. Hypothetically, retention is better, uh, persistence is better, successful course completion is better, and all those metrics that we measure over time would be would be better uh, because there'd be a higher level of intention, right? Versus uh, there's that, there's, there's, there's spinning the wheel for the degree. Yeah, there's you an know. old saying that college is wasted on the young, and I think that for many people. That's Probably true. I mean, again, you're, 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 look, the experience is not wasted, right? You're, you're, everyone, uh, you know, I don't want to. That's for uh, sure. I, I don't want to yeah. minimize mm -hmm. the, the, the value of the experience you have in that environment. Um, but the reality is that, uh, you know, if uh, you, you, that, that's different from the coursework. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I, I think what's, what's fair to say is that, you know, for many students, coursework uh, in an academic program, that uh, they they're, they're not sure about and doesn't lead to a you know clear employment outcome is probably wasted on the young, and um, you know there are there are there are alternative ways to structure it. Um, good stuff. So uh, to go ahead, uh, just want to before we wrap up, I want to ask the last question. Joe, Liz, any other questions? No, I'm good. It's I been great, Ryan. Okay. I was going to ask Ryan just to, for okay. you to weigh in a little bit um, before. Uh, Elvin takes us to uh, wrapping up. You talked a little bit about, which you know we are all a little bit familiar with, the resistance to change. And sometimes in higher ed, it just takes a little bit longer for them to come around. And usually, it's because of a reaction, or they see declining numbers, or things of that nature. We're all well aware of the coronavirus and um, online learning being something that there has been some resistance to it in terms of maybe the quality is not the same, or persistence and retention and graduation is different from face-to-face. -face. You have a, an extremely um, impressive background in online and you're very familiar with that mode of learning. What do you see in, in terms of the response to coronavirus and the schools having to mobilize quickly to online learning platforms and, and the future for online learning and how that plays into some of the, the methods and, and different ways of learning that you talked about as far as future education and changing? Yeah, look. I mean, I think we should be grateful that our, our institutions are uh, are mobilizing so quickly to go uh, online. Uh, I think that's important. I think that online will will continue to play a, a really important role uh, in uh, the, you know higher education and and and, and elementary and secondary. 
education. But, uh, you know, at the elementary and secondary level through high school, I do think that it will be primarily uh, as a, you know, a backup at times like this. Because, you know, uh, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that online education doesn't work very well uh, for uh, individuals who don't have strong executive function skills. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a modality where uh, there is no sort of um, uh, control um, uh, in the, of, of the environment um, uh, by, by, the, by, the, by the teacher. Uh, it's an environment where it's sort of controlled by, by choice uh, and anyone can sort of, you know, turn off the you know, browser or flip to the next uh, uh, screen and, and uh, uh, I think very hard for kids. So I think that the next, you know, uh, few weeks or months, are going to be very challenging <laughs> for wow. uh, yeah. teachers and students uh, who, are, who are being asked to sort of take use this new modality. Um, uh, it is not. Uh, it does not replace uh, an in-person classroom uh, for really anyone other than uh, I would say working adults who are very motivated. Um, mm, they, they can't get by. So the way I think about online is, if you're already in a good job and you're looking to upskill, you're probably going to do that online. But anything, mm -hmm. anything, everything that kind of gets you to a place where you get that first job has to be on ground. That's my view, yeah. is that it's online, doesn't work for all the skill building, the soft skills in particular that you need, um, and uh, is not conducive to retention and completion for, uh, for, for students who just don't have those executive function skills. And maybe in time, uh, we'll develop new technology that uh, addresses uh, those issues, but right now, we're just not seeing it, even with the sort of synchronous um, uh, program, Zoom and, and Adobe Connect and so forth, that we're, uh, that we're seeing. So uh, I, I think it will continue to be a, a backup, and at this point, uh, at this uh, time, times like these obviously a very valuable backup. That's fantastic, Ryan. Thank you so much. So I just want to wrap up with my last two questions. Um, you have provided amazing value, and we appreciate your time. So last two questions for you. Number one, um, how would you like to be remembered? You could talk about professional or uh, personal. Uh, and number two, and you've already talked about this in a, a lot, to be honest with you, but if you can kind of hone in, what does the future of education as a whole, what does the future look like to you? Sure. Um, well, I can start with that. I mean, I think the, the, the future of education is going to be a lot uh, less bundled, more unbundled uh, than it is. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, we, we, we've, we've been living for 60, 70 years since World War II uh, in, a, in, in a place where it kind of there, there's sort of been one pathway uh, for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, that uh, that doesn't need to be the case. And given uh, the world of work today, it makes even less sense than it did 10 or 20 years ago. So uh, thousands of different pathways and options, uh, and maybe even starting, uh, you know, before the end of high school, uh, where mm -hmm. you can, you know, branch mm -hmm. off and begin getting, uh, you know, uh, in real uh, in re re real real time or uh, virtually. Uh, work uh, work experience, um, and everyone's going to have uh, what I call a competency profile, uh, which will be a essentially a, 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 a repository uh, listing uh, their skills, uh, kind of like LinkedIn mm. on steroids. Uh, and uh, you'll, you'll have uh, you, you'll be able to set set goals and uh, figure out the best pathway from here to there. Uh, and for, uh, for for few, uh, for some, it will be you know a traditional degree. 
But for most, I imagine it'll be some kind of faster and cheaper pathway with then subsequent pathways. And that is, you know, we, we, uh, the, the, the crazy thing is what I'm saying sounds so scary and for some mm. in higher education. Radical for us in higher ed, right? <laughs> but it can also be described with, it, with a different term that everyone agrees with, which is lifelong learning. Right? Absolutely. Which is getting what you need when you need it. And so that's mm -hmm. what I'm suggesting. Um, and uh, if I remember for, for one thing, I, I don't know, maybe just, you know, to play a small part in helping to uh, sh shift uh, sh shift America uh, to, uh, you know, a more sensible way uh, and more effective way of, uh, of educating uh, our workforce. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Ryan. We really appreciate it. And thank you, Ryan. Yeah, it was wonderful Absolutely. speaking with you. Great question. So there you have our conversation with Ryan, Craig, Joe, Liz, Joe, what do you guys think? Hey, Liz, why don't you go first this time? Okay. I found it fascinating. I think for those of us in higher ed and those that went to traditional schools like I did, it's different to just change your whole, it's like a cognitive dissonance. It's like, okay, this is what education is supposed to look like. And I think he, he alluded to that. Ryan talks about the fact that in education, we've been doing something for so long decades that sometimes it's different to think about well just little chunks of education or apprenticeships or um, the stackable certifications and different things that we can do to make the outcome better for the student which at the end of the day is the student it's not like I did a five-year program too I was just there one like like Joe talks about just wandering the campus like oh I think I'll just stay here for another year Students don't want to do that anymore. And I see them in the classroom. They just want to get from point A to point B to get a job. And we just have to know and understand that education has changed and evolved and what students need and want has changed and evolved just like everything else over the course of time. It has to change and it has to evolve. So he really brought that point home that as educators, as higher ed, as, as a system and as an institution, as institutions, we have to really try to now look at ways that we can improve outcomes for students and for students that typically job outcomes in partnering with organizations and finding ways to make students more employable. And that's something that was a great takeaway. Yeah. Joe? Yeah, you know, just real fast, it's interesting. The timing of all this is interesting. And he's talking about, you know, getting uh, training for, you know, for an individual to go out and get a job. And you wonder what <clears throat> the coronavirus now as we're dealing with it, the timing of this recording, what level of recession this could potentially put us in. We're getting yeah. training and finding jobs. You know, getting training may be easy and finding jobs may be harder. And so you're going to need that mm -hmm. level of training and having a company that helps you find that job. So the timing of his initiative seems seems to be right. And, uh, you know, I think uh, having somebody out there in the, in the stratosphere, if you will, that's not... Uh, um, a, a higher ed, you know, born and bred, so to speak, somebody out there that's looking at innovations, you know, that integrate with higher ed is important for us to continually evolve uh, our industry. So, uh, Elvin, what did you think? You know, I can't get over what he said about how he was talking to a couple hundred higher ed presidents and when he asked about Salesforce and not a single person <laughs> raised their hand. I mean, <laughs> I, I, right. I what is going on here? I mean, why is it that our leaders are, are not understanding what's going on on the ground or seeing the, the future? Or I, I just, I don't know what's going on. Joe, I, help me out here. You know, what, what is what is going on? I guess, add up listeners, yeah. please. 
message us what's going on that we I'm not seeing that I'm not seeing because I just I mean he was obviously surprised as I was extremely surprised by that so that's a huge takeaway for me something has to change it has to change very quickly and maybe unfortunately this pandemic is is going to be the trigger but I guess we'll just have to wait so. and see Yeah. So much so much focus on theory and history. I mean, from being in the classroom on a daily basis, that's it. It's just there's there's a lot of it. There really is that cognitive dissonance where I was taught this way. We had to learn history. We had to learn the founders of this movement or just everything is just very academic and the practical aspect of it seems to feel like well that's kind of dumbing down my subject. I want to make this higher level. Let's talk about the theory. Let's talk about the history. Let's talk about some of the analysis of all these top level issues and when the student goes into the workforce like hey jump on Salesforce and create a lead and the student's like I don't know how to do that so yeah that's that's a little bit concerning like you said but hopefully we'll start to see more bridging of the gap between those different ideas yeah absolutely absolutely another fantastic episode thank you Joe thank you Liz thank you Ryan thank you so much thanks talk to you soon alright till next time Hope you enjoyed that episode. Just want to remind you that this episode was brought to you by Data Driven Marketing. Please go to datadrivencollegemarketing.com. That's datadrivencollegemarketing.com. And if you talk to Jay, please let him know that Joe, Liz, and Elfin sent you. Once again, this episode was brought to you by Data Driven Marketing. Go to datadrivencollegemarketing.com. That's datadrivencollegemarketing.com. And to learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. That's edupexperience.com. And please feel free to rate, review, subscribe, and share this episode. We really, really appreciate your support. You've been listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Joseph Lustio, Elizabeth Leiber, and Elvin Freitas.